Welcome to the Book Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us. Wallow with us. This is episode two, in which we will be discussing The Gilded Wolves by Roshini Chokshi. Good morning, Marion. Good morning, Lissa. How's your morning going? It's going. I guess it's sunny, which is great. It's not snowing, which is awesome. And like the big event of my morning, I guess, is that uh, my son found a cheese puff in the driveway. So before he went to school, we played soccer with a cheese puff. Um, my son woke up at like 5.30 this morning, and around 6 a.m. I was buying some sort of add-on addition to the game he played on my phone so that I could get an extra 15 minutes of sleep, and it was totally worth it. Yeah, absolutely worth it. This is the truth of parenting right there. Um, but it is warm out. Like, I uh, put my kids in short sleeves, and I'm wearing shorts. Wow. Yeah, I had a t-shirt on, I guess, this morning, too. It feels almost weird. Uh, not to be hunting through the house for like a sweater and a jacket and regular socks and fuzzy socks. So yeah, but good, Facebook, but good, but good. For sure. My Facebook memories had multiple pictures of snow ice cream from this day in previous <laughs> years. So, so we should feel, feel really lucky. <laughs> really lucky. Yes. Um, so we read a book. We did. We read a book. Which and it was uh, the perfect choice. Was it? Okay. Yeah. You know okay. why? Why Because we both got it in the middle. <laughs> we did. Um, I think we chose this book specifically because each of us happens to own a copy of it. Uh, I will say flat out that it was also a book that was on my radar and that I was really looking forward to. Uh, every month I have a list of like books that come out this month I'm super excited to read. And this book was the book on my list. And it came out in January, I think. And it's only March, so you're like... It's only March. <laughs> I am really close. It's been on my TBR uh, every month since January, but I tend to uh, get a little off target. You know, the shiny new book comes in and I read that one instead of whatever it was I was planning to read. So it was good to have an excuse to sit down and really read this one. And we should probably tell people how come we each got one in the mail, which is that each of us subscribes to a book box subscription service. I subscribe to Owlcrate. And I subscribe to Uppercase. Okay. I have had, I think, one Uppercase a long time ago as well, which I liked. I got Uppercase because I um, was instructed by kind of like the whole world that I should do more things for self-care. And so mm -hmm. I bought myself Uppercase. Yes, I think I, think I first got Owlcrate as a birthday present to myself. You know, I was like, Marion, yeah. you're worth it. Buy yourself what you want because no one else will do it. So I did. And I have been a subscriber ever since. Yeah, I really like the part where, like, I get a present in the mail. It and is. thoughtful. Somebody works really hard to make it things I will like. They do. And I think it's be 
because I'm me, before I chose a subscription box, I think I made like a spreadsheet of every book they'd each had and cost comparison and everything else for not just these two, but a couple of other book services as well. And try to decide what would be best for me. And I know that I chose Alcrate because, like you said, somebody chooses each of these books very specifically and thoughtfully, and they reflect the taste or decision-making of the individuals who own these small businesses. And Alcrate tends to choose more fantasy novels, I think, than uppercase trends toward contemporary books. Would you say that was true? Yeah. Yeah, although they have a good mix of both, and I've gotten, you know, both out of both boxes. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to talk about, like, the stuff that comes with the book Yeah, in um, the box. We are so different. Like, I got uppercase because a library customer was like, oh, I think you would like uppercase. And I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> so no, no comparison, no PowerPoint presentations, no spreadsheets. I didn't no, research at all. No, no cost analysis. <laughs> I just went and did it. <laughs> and it's worked out great. It's worked out great. There you go. Um, so this was the January 2019 box for both of these. And I wrote a list of what was in my Alcrate box. What did you month. get? Well, Alcrate has a theme every month uh, related to whatever the book is. And they'll give you the book and then things associated with that theme. So the theme was Magical Artifacts. And had the Gilded Wolves, and this is a custom copy of the book. I, th I think it might even have custom custom hard co covers on it. It certainly has a cus custom uh, dust jacket, and it's signed. And then it had a letter from the author, and it had a pair of socks that were Master of Death socks, or Harry Potter, um, you know, the Deathly Hallows symbol socks all over them, which I love socks. I was super excited. And it had a little bracelet inspired by the Grisha books by Lee Bardugo and a uh, zipper pencil pouch from A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab, which is a book I have read. And um, like a fabric wall tapestry from The Golden Compass. And it's sad because I love the person who made it. The, the artist who designed it is a big time favorite of mine that I follow on Instagram, but I already have like a million pictures and I'm not a fan of the Golden Compass. I tried it and it didn't work out for me. So sad. Uh, and a terrific letter opener from The Hobbit that looks like um, Sting the Sword, which my son stole. And they always have a pin to match the book. And they used to be just like button buttons, you know. Uh, right. And now they're fancy dancy enamel pins. And this was the first month that had the enamel pin. And it also there was a luggage tag that goes with the Gilded Wolves itself, like some of that book swag that comes with things. That is so fancy. It is really fancy. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, my package, which sometimes I secretly open when my kids are not around mm -hmm. so that I can like keep things myself. Um, my package had the book and it had um, a character card with a picture of Severin and um, a very nice, beautiful picture. Um, and I think maybe there were other character cards, but that's the one that I got. And then it had a Harry Potter themed Quidditch notebook, which my daughter promptly said, mom, you know, I really like notebooks. <laughs> so, so 
it's a waste of time for me to say, Lisa, I really like that notebook. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can ask my daughter about no, it. No, 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 no. No, she has big anime eyes. I'm not. She does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and her, yeah, her new glasses just make her eyes look bigger. There you go. Um, and then some um, winter court loose leaf tea, uh, which I'm figuring out how to make, I think. I haven't figured it out yet because I'm an occasional tea drinker. Do you, not, do you not have a, um, a uh, loose leaf tea strainer type thing? No. Is that what I mean? <gasps> yes. I want to see you next. I'll bring you some. I have so many. I'll just bring you some. Okay, I'll wait, and then you can teach me about the tea. Okay, it's pretty easy, pretty easy. Because one part of of any kind of subscription box, I think, is trying new things. It is, and And subscription boxes for books seem to love tea, which I think is fascinating. I am a tea drinker, but pretty pretty staid, I guess. I drink, you know, brown tea and green tea. So it's always exciting for me to get some weird flavor that I have not tried before to try out. Or to get literary tea. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I always think that getting an uppercase box is fun because um, because it's a present in the mail, and because you don't know what will be in it, and because it's like a hand-selected book. And, like, I bring home a lot of books from the library, and I look at a lot of books, and I read a lot of books, but often I don't have somebody else recommend one to me. Right. And something I think is interesting about uppercase is that it comes with this bookmark that has reading experience extras in it like a the author talking to you or yeah at some comment board we can go talk to people or whatever and it is a total mystery because I always try to guess because I'm a package rattler and I almost always know what book is going to be in the owl crate because of the theme so since it's going to be a new book out this this month whatever this month is and I know what the theme is I'm pretty good at figuring out what the book is going to be. Um, but I noticed that uppercase does uh, give hints as well. So I don't even look at the hints. Ah, see, you're not a package rattler. I'm but it is it rattler. is like practically my favorite day of the month when the mail comes and it has some surprise in it, some happy mail that is you know, not a bill and not a flyer. It makes it more exciting. It does. Good thing. Have you read any other books by this author? I have not. So we're, I looked her up because this is my first book by her as well. And she is prolific over a short span of time. I think her first book came out in 2016. And this is one, two, three, six books that I'm counting that are either out or coming out this year. And that's pretty amazing to produce two books a year. And it seemed to be, there's the YA books like the Gilded Wolves. And then there's middle grade books, the Arusha books which have come out under the um, Rick Riordan Presents Umbrella, who is famous for the Percy Jackson books and um, Trials of Apollo and Magnus Chase and stuff, all of which I love. But he has um, an imprint, I guess I would say, under, I don't actually know which of the big houses owns it, that produces mythology-inspired books with a particular interest in non-Western mythologies, I guess I'd um, say. That's kind of cool. Yeah, there, it is cool. So this is the, so there's two Arusha books. One is out, and I think the second one isn't out quite yet. But anyway, she seems to, 
be a going concern and, and be producing a lot of, of books, major books, in a short amount of time. So, and the other thing that interested me is with the Gilded Wolves is that I had noticed that all of a sudden there are a lot of at least YA books that are set in Paris. Just boom, I don't know why. And I was trying to, to think of them off the top of my head in addition to the Gilded Wolves. There's An Affair of Poisons by Addie Thorley, which is just coming out now, maybe in the last month or two, and also in the last month or two, Enchanté by uh, Gita Trulice, and The Grim Lovelies by Megan Shepard, which came out relatively recently, in the past six months maybe, that are all set in Paris. And I've been wondering... Did I miss something? Is there some anniversary of something that went on in Paris that I should be remembering that's inspiring all these books? Or, or what is the deal? Huh. Are they all set in that same, like, turn of the last century time period? Mostly. A, an Affair of Poisons, I think, is Louis the Fourteenth, so slightly older. But Enchanté and Grim Lovelies and Guild Wolves, I think, are all Gilded Age Paris books. And all fantasy books. Um... I don't know. Have you ever been to Paris? Uh, for an afternoon. An I afternoon? Paris. <laughs> <laughs> just just nipped over on the Concorde for the afternoon. Uh, you no, know, we took the channel train. Oh, really? Yes. That's so exciting. Um, yeah. Um, we Once I went to um, London with my dad and my sister, and we took the channel train over. And uh, in that way that life happens, under the Eiffel Tower, we ran into people my sister knew. No way. Yeah, it was amazing. So you had, like, um, a good time in Paris. It was a very brief time, but it was a good time. I got my favorite necklace um, at the uh, museum gift shop under the art museum, which we didn't go in. That's just where our tour bus met up. It was all lovely. Well, that's very good for you, Lisa. I have been to Paris more than once, and I'm very fond of telling people that the first time I went to Paris, I was there three days. I was robbed four times. And arrested. So. Uh, I think your story's more interesting than mine. <laughs> well, <it's> a, <laughs> and I guess so. And it's interesting because I was a, a, a teenage student at that point in my life. And later on, when I went back to Paris with other students, everybody in the group had been robbed. And this last Christmas, a, a friend of my daughter's went to Paris over Christmas, and they were robbed in the same place that I was robbed, which is outside the Louvre. Um, that's one of the places that people tried to rob us. So it doesn't seem to change much. I know. So my uh, my feelings for Paris are really, I guess, complicated. Anyway, since I had, you know, maybe a, le- a more exciting but less pleasant experience um, than you. And I was also trapped in the airport there for like a long, long time due to bad weather. So, um, yeah. But I guess it's okay. We were only there for one afternoon. I guess so. But you know, it's it's a pity that you missed you know, seeing the Louvre or or whatever. Did you at least get a pastry? Uh, we got a crepe. Oh, that's good. That's something. Yeah. That's good. Got to see the Eiffel Tower. Ate a crepe. Left. Yeah. So that's probably the perfect Paris day. It was lovely. Yeah. And I don't remember getting robbed, so... That's good. Yeah. That's good news. So, Marion, what is this book really about, then? 
Well, I make such a hash of trying to explain to people what books are about that I thought the easiest way to do it was to tell you what Goodreads says the book is about. And it says, an instant New York Times bestseller. From a New York Times bestselling author, Roshni Chokshi, comes The Gilded Wolves, a novel set in Paris during a time of extraordinary change, one that is full of mystery, decadence, and dangerous desires. No one believes in them, but soon no one will forget them. It's 1889. The city is on the cusp of industry and power, and the Exposition Universelle, how's that sound, has breathed new life into the streets and dredged up ancient secrets. Here, no one keeps tabs on dark truths better than treasure hunter and wealthy hotelier Severin Montanay Allery. When the elite, ever-powerful Order of Babel coerces him to help them on a mission, Severin is offered a treasure that he never imagined, his true inheritance. To hunt down the ancient artifact the Order seeks, Severin calls upon a band of unlikely experts, an engineer with a debt to pay, a historian banished from his home, a dancer with a sinister past, and a brother in arms, if not blood. Together, they will join Severin as he explores the dark, glittering heart of Paris. What they find might change the course of history, but only if they can stay alive. They do a good job with that. Of staying alive? No, of the description. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, I guess so. It's interesting to me, the description, because the magic system is really central to the book, and it doesn't really talk about it much. It doesn't talk about what the Order of Babel might be. Um, or No. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, like the engineer's pretty magic. Mm-hmm. The dancer is pretty magic. I mean, yep. Yeah. And it's this is a an ensemble cast, shall we say, of six main characters. And I was trying to sort them out in my head who's who, so I made a list, which Of course you did. Of, I did even which, I made a list. <laughs> even I made a list. <laughs> even you made a list cuz like, ah, I don't want to miss anybody. Um so would you say that Severin is the main character, right? He is. Because he's, he's the ringleader. He's the ringleader and he's named in this jacket copy, whereas nobody else is. Uh, so he is the, oh gosh, and see, this is, this is, I will, my opinion of this book is up in the air and I'm hoping that you'll help me out here with what I really think about it. So Severin is the main character and he is, I have him, to, it says here in my notes, the erstwhile heir to the house of Vanth. So there's these magic using houses and there were four of them and now there's two of them and he is the heir to one of the houses that has been like decertified, right? Yes. And he owns this fabulous hotel called La Eden and he is a thief he has been collecting stuff that he feels would belong to him if he had not been rooked out of his proper inheritance as the heir to the house of Vanth, right? Yes, and, and he's, he's got like a team. A team. And he's French and Algerian? They they talk about like race and ethnicity in this book. A lot. A lot. Yeah. And yet it was still really hard for me to keep everybody straight. That's it was me too. Notes. Yeah, me too. And I, th I think it, he looks, it's like a point that he looks French in quotes enough to 
get by with being an average French guy. So he looks, I guess, more like his dad than his mom, who I gather is Algerian. Did you get Algerian out of that? Yeah? I think so. I wrote African at the top of my notes. Well, Algeria is in Africa. So, right. you know, we're close. Uh, Northern African. Yes. Yeah, Northern African. We'll go with that. And then we have... So, wait a minute. Severin, did you think he has any kind of magic doing power? They call it forging in this book. I didn't think so. No, that's why he needed a team. Yeah, I don't think he does either. He's like a manager and clever, but I don't think he has can make magic the way some people in this book can make magic. And we have Layla. She's the she is the dancer with a sinister past. So she is this dancer. She's also like the head baker at his hotel. But like that's her hobby. It's her hobby, but they seem to really. De- Depend on it away, but she really loves baking. But she works as a dancer, so she can spy on people and have contacts. I think so. Okay, and she's Indian, and she can touch things and read their past, as long as they're not forged, right? Yes. Okay. So if something's magical, she can't tell can't. stuff about it. But if it's just like your handkerchief, right? Then she can like tell what you were thinking all day, kind of. Right, where you've been, so forth, even thinking how you feel, so forth. And then we have Tristan. He's the brother in arms, if not blood. And he's a gardener. And yes. he grew up with Severin, and he likes spiders, and he can forge things out of plant materials. Yes, and that's where his... It seemed like the magic, like you would have magic that applied to a certain skill. Right. And I have a lot to say about the magic system in this book. So, yay! Um, Or no! Um, And how old do you think Tristan is? I just thought everybody was 18. 18, because Layla is 18, because it's stated that her 19th birthday is coming up. And I assumed everybody's about the same age, but it doesn't really say. And Tristan reads younger to me. He kind of does, but then he's like being a grown-up. Ish. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Uh, We have Enrique, who is the historian researcher, and he's Filipino in Spanish. Yes, definitely Filipino. Yes. And I think, or Portuguese, Filipino and Portuguese. Maybe? Maybe. Yes. Portuguese. Yes. Because it's like a deal that he looks more Filipino than he does Portuguese. So, yeah, that's like a whole deal in here as well. Um, And I don't think he has any forging power either. He's just a really good researcher, historian. And he's like pretty. He is pretty. They're all pretty, but he is very, very pretty. So, Uh, and then we have Zofia, who's the engineer, mad scientist. She has a thing for flames. Um, She's on the autism spectrum. Somewhere. That comes through on her, in her character repeatedly. It does in her, in her outer character, in the expression of her outer character. But a couple of times, her internal thoughts, she was using um, figurative language and her own thoughts, which I wasn't too sure about because people who are on the autism spectrum are really, really literal people. Uh, I've worked with many of them. And know them very, very well. And I have 
I use a lot of figurative speech. And when I was working with kids who had autism, I always had to remember to taper my speech to be more literal so that they would understand because if I'm, say, the moon is a balloon, they think it is, you know. So I was surprised in her interior thoughts because Roshni Chakshi is a very lyrical writer, writes very beautiful sentences um, with lots of lush imagery in it that kind of crept into Zofia's inner thoughts sometimes. Um, she's also Jewish, and I couldn't decide whether she was from Poland or Russia. Did you catch it? I, I picked up on that she was Jewish, but I didn't pick up beyond that. Okay. She talks about places, but I just didn't know where those places were. Um, she's blue-eyed, blonde. And she, as far as I can tell, she can forge just about anything that you need. She can make it. Uh, um, yeah, especially things with metal and solids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was like Tristan could forge liquids, and that's why he was good with plants. I think. Okay, so I'm willing to believe it. Solids. I think that was the magic. <laughs> I'm willing to believe it. I'm willing to believe it. And then the I last one is... Less magic books. I know, but I was like, yeah. Uh, and the last one is Hypnos, and he is the patriarch of one of the remaining two houses, the House Nix, I think it is. And he was a childhood friend of Severin's, but they have had a falling out after Severin didn't get to be a patriarch, and Hypnos did. And he must have a name that's not actually... I don't think Hypnos is his actual name, because he said that's what he likes to be called. Um, and I can't quite remember his parentage. Maybe... I can't remember. He's another one with one French parent and one foreign parent. I found the, I found the character descriptions really tricky to remember and to follow because right. sometimes it was about how they looked and sometimes it was about how others might treat them or not treat them, right. but not always. And there weren't other people of those races or ethnicities or backgrounds for us to reflect on i guess so and hypnos is uh, he's like he's also gorgeous we should mention that everybody's really beautiful in this book and he's really are. like dark-skinned and light-eyed they talk about his light eyes a lot and what a, how they stand out and what a gorgeous eyes he has um and i wasn't sure whether he'd altered them to make them lighter or not there was some kind of i remember there being like a clue that that might be the case at some point in time. And he, he's kind of an illusion specialist. He, yeah, he did some wacky things in his house. Yes, weird stuff in his house. So those are our characters. That's our plot line. Um, we want to get this artifact so people can reach their larger goals. And everybody has a larger goal. And I thought the goals were fairly clearly stated on what it is that people want. Yeah, um, I think they had good, clear motivations in their relation to Severin and him kind of managing their skills and and their wants. Um, okay, so here's my biggest reflection on like your character notes versus mine. Because uh-huh. this is like the most Lissamarian difference ever. <laughs> my character notes are all about who likes who. <laughs> That's true. And there's a lot of relationship drama here. Because I spent the whole time trying to be like, okay, but from this description, it's from this point of view, and they're describing them favorably. So, like, do they like them like them? Or And, like, yeah. I started making character notes truly 
not to do anything but trace out who had crushes on who. You need you need one I of those follow it. You need one of those walls with like string and pins and pictures. Where Maybe yeah. You make a web like that. Maybe. So do you want to like like uh, remind me of who who like likes who here? Um. Well, it was tricky, and um. So at first, it was hard to tell. And eventually, I sorted out that Severin really likes Layla. Mm -hmm. And vice versa. And vice versa. And they had a thing for one night, which they can never talk of again. That's right. Um, Like, when we finally got to that point, I was like, oh, okay, I thought that's what was going on, but I just wasn't sure. Um, But then, like, before it was clear that Severin and Tristan were brothers, I was like, oh, they're just really close. That's interesting. Well, they're not really brother brothers. They're just raised together. So they're like brothers. Exactly. Uh, And then, like, Enrique is beautiful. And Sophia Uh is beautiful but doesn't know it. And Hypnos is beautiful. And, like, it seemed like those three could all kind of go any combination. Right. Right? And I'm still kind of there with them. It is. I think by the end of the book, Enrique is... He is the, the... The... tying together factor of that trio, I guess, because he clearly likes Zofia and she's kind of so coming around. And yeah, yeah, she's, you know, she's trying really hard to understand relationships because relationships are really difficult for her. So she's kind of coming to the belief that maybe she and Enrique could be a thing, but then maybe she's like, maybe we can't be a thing. And then um, she tries to flirt, which was like my favorite part. Yes, I did enjoy the part where she's trying to flirt with him, trying to say, what do other women do when they're flirting? I'll try to do that. she's asking him like for feedback. And he's like, no, no, you're good. <laughs> you're good. Like, you're good. Um, it's working fine. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, so like at the end of the book, maybe Enrique and Hypnos is a thing. Maybe right. Enrique and Zofia is a thing. Um, like that. So I guess, I guess if you want to find out, Lissa, you'll have to read book two. I know. Uh, that's, I mean... <laughs> I'm like, do the houses get their power? I don't know who hooks up in book two. That is why I will be reading. There you go. That's there you go. So, as as I was reading, and and the reason I discussed, the reason I made all these notes about like people's racial background, um, and so forth, is because in YA, YA is kind of having a moment, uh, which grew out of the We Need Diverse Books movement and the Own Voices movement both of which I think are great, I should add, that there is a kind of a checklist for what is the perfect YA book for this moment that checks all the boxes that you would look for to make the most, maybe the most saleable, the most commercial checklist that you could have for a YA book. And this includes racial diversity, uh, LGBTQIA plus um, storylines, neurodiversity and then a big issue hop an issue in this case colonialism and cultural appropriation and i reading this book it's almost like if you were to sit down and say well what's the hottest what is the hottest thing what do i need to write in order to be commercially saleable currently this book is it it, it, it ticks every one of those boxes in some way and also the Gilded Age, and also historical fiction, and also magic. Right. So it's like, it's a lot. It's a lot. Trying to go on here. And, um, well, I think those are all 
fine ideas. And I was trying to decide, do I feel like some of this is forced or does it feel natural to me? And it felt pretty natural to me. Um, other than I'm not sure that Gilded Age Paris was as chock-a-block full of racial diversity as this book has it being, if that makes sense. Yeah, that was where I really got confused about all of the diversity. Right. Because I didn't see other diverse characters. Right. Everybody else is just French. And because I didn't see any of the repercussions for being not just French. There were maybe a couple. I mean, like I said, they talk about when they have to go like undercover at disguise at this big house party because Severin looks French. He can go as a French guy, but everybody else has to go kind of in disguise uh, one way or the other, pretending to be so, something that we're not. Yeah. But like, is the, is the racial and ethnic diversity just because of the overlay of a magical world and these different houses like that. I couldn't figure out what was different in this world than the real world and what yeah. I was learning about the Gilded Age versus not. Right. And that, that's something that I thought about a lot while I was reading it because if you're writing fantasy books with magic, you can either make a whole new world or you can deal with the world that we have and add a magical element to it, which are books that I traditionally like a lot. Um, but if you take this world and you add magical elements into it, you have to make decisions about which parts of reality am I going to keep, honor, reflect on, and which parts am I throwing out the window? Um, like if I, if I want to write a book that is racially diverse and I want to set it in late 19th century Paris, do I have to rewrite the material of, of reality to make it possible for me to have both of those things which in this case yes yeah which which I'm really okay with but you need to make it very clear um for example there's a series of books I really love which are the Lockwood and Co books by Jonathan Stroud which take place in an alternate London it's a London but it has this magical problem that for the past 40 or 50 years or whenever ghosts have been getting up and walking around and terrorizing people so certain changes have happened in london based on dealing with this problem but it's recognizably london and it has these changes specific to this problem but i think if you're going to use a real a real setting you need to to make clear what changes that you're making and why how how things have changed these Babel fragments came in around the world and therefore the following is different about France than it would have been if it's just Gilded Age France, if I were writing a straight up historical novel, right? Yeah, because I think at some point you run into the Hamilton problem, which my children have. Like they saw, um, they heard the musical Hamilton, they heard the music and we saw pictures and we saw like a documentary about it and it was amazing. And then they saw pictures of like, real um you know george washington mm -hmm. and hamilton and they were like um, um these are all like this is not what we thought they looked like mom right right and i think you run into that same problem here like you're learning about gilded age paris kind of from fiction but you're not learning about gilded age paris from fiction 
Right. And, and it's interesting because the author, in the author letter she sent in my box that I got, she talks about how initially she was dazzled and in love with the concept of Gilded Age Paris as this wonderful place. And then the more she looked at it, the more she realized that there's, you know, an underbelly of, of not so awesome stuff going on in late 19th century Europe which is true. So she wants to highlight the not-so-awesome stuff, and the way she's doing it is through the creation of these characters and the placement of them in that universe. Like I said, it's it's a lot to take on. I was thinking when I was reading it also about a billion years ago when I was in music appreciation class, and the teacher was discussing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Pretty successful symphony, Right. Yeah, And she said, what makes it great is that he has a single theme, the da-da-da-da theme, right? That's it. Those four notes or whatever it is. And then he takes that simple theme and he's exploring it and changing it and altering it and going deeper into it and riffing on it and bringing this for 60 minutes worth of music. And it's successful because he is examining that particular issue thoroughly. And I wonder whether even in a massive epic fantasy like this one, whether in trying to take on all of these issues at once, whether you can do good service to any of them. If you're interested in what it is to be a racially diverse person in a predominantly uh, homogenous 19th century Paris, that's a book. Or if you're interested in what it is to be LGBTQIA in 19th century Europe, that's a thing. If you're interested in how neurodiverse people, people with autism and so forth, learn to interact with a society that has a ton of rules, that's a thing. If you're interested in the fallout or damage caused by colonialism and cultural appropriation, that's a thing. And so this book is, I mean, this book is book one of a trilogy, right? but it feels like two more books wouldn't be enough to address how many things there are. Maybe, maybe. But we and don't know because we haven't read them yet. We haven't read them yet. She hasn't written them yet. So maybe she's, maybe she's got more going on there. Uh, but it, but it's, like I said, it, sometimes I felt like you're taking on too much here. You should pick, pick something. Maybe two out of, this is what, four or five things. Pick two and concentrate on them and hint at the others maybe and a deal with the others in a different book in this series so each one has something new to offer me yeah because it's a lot to advance it is a lot to advance but that said i mean i'm still going to come back to see how the romances work out oh well there you go and read about all those other things right <laughs> i'm aware all those other things are happening in this book but i'm hooked because i totally want to see what happens with Severin and Layla and Enrique and Sophia and Hypnos and you do that. There I you will. There you go. And I'll, you know, I'm, I guess I'm here for that too. Um, it, like I said, in trying to figure out, you're going to come back to see how the magic works. <sighs> I'm going to come out to see if the magic works better. I guess. So yeah, tell me about the magic. <laughs> well, as you know, Lisa, I tend to write books with the magic in them myself. And I'm in the process of starting to edit a big book with a magic system that I wrote the book as a National Novel Writing Month novel. And because I am a discovery writer, as I like to say these days instead of pantser, 
That's lovely. Isn't it lovely? It sounds so much better, doesn't it? So discovery writer, there you go. Uh, But I wrote the book really before understanding the magic system. I kind of, it was a last minute idea and I jumped in and there's a ton of stuff I did not know when I wrote the first 73,000 word um, draft of the book. So now that I'm having to go and fix it, I've been giving a lot of thought to magic systems and how you build a magic system and how magic systems work and what makes them satisfactory in a book, you know, that I can feel good about the magic system. And so I've been researching that a lot. And then I came to the Gilded Wolves right in the middle of hashing out all these questions myself. And I had been reading everything that I could find on how to read magic systems, but and looking at everything. But the thing that really struck me was a lecture that I saw on the YouTubes of Brandon Sanderson, who is a really successful fantasy author, author big, talk, big, 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 talking about building magic systems and what needs to happen for a magic system to work. And in thinking about my own work and about what he had to say And reading The Gilded Wolves, I thought the problem that I have with this book really centers around the magic system in a big time way, because I think it's just too soft. The rules of it are not clear enough to me. And because the rules rules are not clear enough to me, I felt that it might be uh, not working as well as it could be. So what we have here is you have these Babel stones that they're building a tower of Babel and God knocks it down because you shouldn't be trying to build a heaven. And he throws these rocks out all over the world. And if one lands near your civilization's geographic location, you acquire this ability to do magic. So these Babel stones, they are limited in number. But as far as I can tell, they're not limited in power or in the expression of that power. And... The abil- so the ability to forge, to make magical things, and the access to the power to do it is presented both as exclusive and encompassing. It's exclusive in that these four houses control the magic system, right? They secretly know maybe the location of their stone or don't, and they seem to control a lot of the forging work. But on the other hand, lots of people in this book seem to have the ability to forge, even if they're outside that house power. Um, And there's lots and lots of examples of objects that are forged that are in this book. People have clothes that are forged with uh, flowers that move around or whatever, or um, in Severin's hotel. And I think at the party also, there are chandeliers that are made up of champagne glasses that'll detach and come down into your hand and uh, people wear cabaret costumes that are forged. There's a lot of examples. Everybody has forged stuff, like, all the time. It's really common. So people see this magic all around them. And and a question that I had, which I didn't receive addressed in this book, is there are people who are not magic, regular folk. If you were living in a city where some people had this stupendous apparently limitless power and you got bubkiss would you not be mad about that it kind of ignores class issues 
in a way yeah for a book that has all the other things <laughs> it has all the other things like other people have power in to make magic and i got nothing and i mean like we don't even really see servants maybe no i mean i, mean, I guess there's some guards and butlers and stuff but everybody seems to have them i don't know so people who don't have magic don't really seem to care about it so if severin can access this magic and all this magical stuff without being head of his house and he can already steal stuff from the secret auctions that i don't know why they have but they do what powers are denied him why should he care whether he's head of house or not he got the money and the stuff and the power um so that but anyway my big problems with the magic system are things that brandon sanderson was suggesting to me when he was teaching me via this video about magic systems one is that your magic system needs to have a cost and i can't figure out what the cost is for this magic did you uh, like i mean like it mentally hurts people does it i don't know I well mean, i mean there's like there's like a a cap That's you can put the evidence i see like it like all all of the people i see in the book who can do the foraging suffer for it in some way but it's not a direct cost okay like it makes you mean and suffer like it makes somewhat, you unhappy or they're all somewhat haunted by it it seems okay. like to me. but it's like there's no physical cost to it i don't have to chop off a finger to do magic or right or like wait till tomorrow to do more with my right i have i've run out i i'm my tank is empty i gotta fill up again they just seem to be able to do it whenever they want to there's a an economic cost doing magic you need materials but everybody in this book seems to have plenty of money to get the materials yeah so that doesn't they always seem to have everything they need there's not a material that is like in the Dune books, like you need the spice or whatever. So like the rest of the plot revolves around how do you get the how do you get the ingredient that you need? But they seem to always have access to the ingredients. There's no I gotta save up for six years to buy this whatever so I can make a another thing. Yeah, because their heists are all about specialty items where there's only like one in the world. Yeah. And they Which have is, access to kind of everything else they need. I guess and it's, they're inventing new things. They are. So I was like, on the one hand, we have these Babel fragments sent by God. And we have ancient artifacts that are apparently not reproducible. And on the other hand, when they need to reproduce them, they totally do. At one point, Severin picks up this cloth, a special impenetrable cloth. Yes. And like by two days later, they figured out, A, what it is because it, they got it with no no instructions, right? But they got to figure out what it is, how it works, and Zophius managed to reproduce it largely, a uh, big enough piece. So there's no limits to it. And this is the, like maybe the worst thing to me. There's no limits. Whenever they need something to happen, they automatically have access to it. We're going to need a cloth to cover up this secret door so that it looks like it's open, but it's not. Bam, it's there. Um, I need to have somebody's handprint, bam, we invent, the, invent this streak of sia, sia gel that you put on your hands and then you touch somebody and you get their palm print and you can put it up against the door and it works. Um, 
So anything that they needed to have to advance the plot, the magic expanded out to make that possible to have. It's like MacGyver magic. It is like MacGyver magic, but it made it less tense, maybe less satisfying. If my magic only does X and it doesn't do anything beyond X and I have a problem that requires Y, then I need to use my wits or a new way to use the magic based on the rules that I've already established for it. How far can I bend this thing without breaking it? How can I be more clever with the resources that I already have in order to solve this new problem that I've acquired? And this book just didn't have that to me. Whatever it is we need to invent, we invent. Whatever it, and maybe because there's so many different varietals of magic in it, magic doesn't work in one way. Like Zofia transforms metals. Tristan does things with liquids and plants. Um, Layla can just read anything you give her. So everybody has the magic and it's working in a completely different way. Regardless of what your problem is, somebody can solve it like snap. Super ultimate teamwork, but like too much. Like they don't have enough weaknesses that they can't overcome. So then when they, everything's going great, then you get more bad guys instead of a gap they can't fill or a, Right, and they have to solve a different, clever way. And it lowered the tension for me, because like, regardless of what the problem is, I'm like, oh, well, they'll just make a thing. It'll be cool. So to me, that lowered the overall like page-turning tension of the book, and it made the book just a little bit flatter. Um, And when I was watching Brandon Sanderson, he addressed this. He said, you know, when you're building magic systems or societies, if you're building a, a fantasy society on, you know, Marianlandia with the capital Marianopolis, you're better off going deep instead of wide. Instead of introducing 50 different varietals of alien, maybe you want two varietals of alien, but you know them really well and you can explore them to a greater extent. And magic systems are the same. Instead of having your magic be able to do anything you want it to, make it do this thing. This is how it works. And explore that really deeply so there was that um i'm getting so much more out of this talking to you about it. <laughs> and one of the things i'm getting out of it is that i apparently read all magic books like they're science and because i'm like oh but the chemistry behind that was so interesting and yeah then i'm like you know marion's not really talking about science because this was magic not science and I just tried to turn it all into chemistry. Like when they had that fabric and they were looking at the, you know, how they did the thing so it was impenetrable. And like to me, I was like, oh, what an interesting way to use science. Science, yes. And it's interesting because she is, a, Sophia is kind of a scientist, you know. She's interested in. I mean, yeah, they describe her as an engineer on the thing. And I would call her, I mean, kind of an engineer, chemist. Something. But, I don't know. but, you know, science has rules. There's only so much you can do in science. You can't, you know, magic it. Magic it. So if you're going to magic it, I think you have to still bind it by rules. You can't just take science and expand it out infinitely to do whatever you want it to do and fast with no problems. Yeah. Um, there were parts of this that made me feel like red shirts, um, like the lab in red shirts where there's essentially magic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where I was like, oh, and then they just do it. Which, yeah. Which still would, meant I was thinking of it like science that had a magical component. But, 
but apparently that's just how I approach <laughs> and that's books. that's fair that's allowed so and I said ha if I didn't read a lot of this sort of book and write a lot of this sort of book and if I weren't struggling with building constraining and making rules and understanding the magic system that I'm writing and if I had not been studying magic systems because I'm trying to understand and make better the magic system that I'm writing, maybe I would have less trouble with the magic system in this book. And but it th- gives us lots to think about as we try to think about like what could happen in book two and like what the what the tension at the end of this first book is Meh. where we think it's you see, headed. See, I just presume they'll just invent whatever they need to invent or she'll add on to the magic system whatever she needs to add on to the magic system to make it work. And that there won't be any related problems, according to that. Because there are a lot of puzzles in this book. Um, there was a lot of math. There's a lot of math, and there's a lot of puzzles in the book, but they tend to solve the puzzle right away. You know? Yes. Like, puzzle appears on page 43. By page 45, they know the answer to the puzzle. Um, which, to me, made it kind of... Like She Wished She Was Dan Brown, speaking of books that take place in Paris, partially. That book, um, um, The Da Vinci Code, you know, has one. Have you read The Da Vinci Code? No. Oh, it's a total page turner. It's an absolute juggernaut of staying up all night reading and turning the pages, which doesn't mean it's, it's not like great literature, but it's, an, it's a really page turning, beautifully put together book full of puzzles. But they at least suffer a little bit trying to understand the puzzles sometimes, even though they saw them pretty quickly but I felt like the puzzles I wish they had been more strugglesome or that they'd gotten some wrong and then had to get them right later maybe but yeah yeah because the math worked out pretty quickly yeah like, I yeah. felt like I learned from it it was instructive <laughs> the good math the good math is is good um okay so did we not like this book or did we like it I like it. I don't love it, I guess. I Because it is, it was like the big major release and because I built it up in my head, I wanted it to dazzle me. And it didn't dazzle me. It was okay. I had trouble getting into it. I tried it on audiobook twice. Um, and the first time I listened to like half of it and kind of, just kind of lost track of the characters. It was hard on Mm -hmm. audiobook because it switched POV um, and on audio that I found hard. Um, But then we were supposed to record this podcast a couple days ago and I was like, (laughs) no, 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 wait, wait, I'm really into the book now. I've got to read it. And then I got really into it and like read, read it kind of like a page turner straight through, Um, which maybe was deadline based. But I think if I finally just kind of got hooked by the story and the characters and wanting to know, what did happen? I guess I'd agree that I think it picked up speed as it went along. Um, maybe some of which has to do with the the world building at the beginning or something. I had trouble understanding what the stakes were. Maybe yes. Why do I? Why am I supposed to care so much? And then by you know the second half of the book, by then I know the characters and I know the world, so. I was more interested in their success. Yeah, because stakes is not just like, where is this headed? But it's like, who do I root for? Right. And why? Why should I care about you? 
And what are you trying to accomplish? And how can I tell if you're getting closer or not? How can I tell what's about to be a threat or not? How can I tell if you like that girl or not? All those things keep you turning the pages if you understand that you're looking for them. Yep. Like I said, in a ways, Lisa, I think you have sort of an advantage in this book over me because, because this is a genre that I'm really familiar with. So my expectations are, are different than yours and maybe um, greater than yours. And another thing I was thinking about in terms of my attachment to it or my enjoyment of it was how similar or different it is to other books like this, the comparable books. Um, like I said, I got this from an uppercase and it tends you know, to have the theme and it has books that are based on that theme are referenced in terms of the materials that you get. And one of them was from a Grisha verse book by Lee Bardugo, which I thought was very appropriate because the book that this reminds me of is Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, which I'm going to presume you have not read. I started it once because you recommended it. <laughs> it's, but I started it on audiobook and then I couldn't get into it. I don't know. It's it, I picked it up, frankly, because it's a gorgeous looking book, which clearly I have an issue with reading books because they're pretty. Uh, but But it does what this book wants to do and it does it really really well maybe better but it's fine with me if a book borrows from other fantasy worlds or tropes or ideas because there's only so many books in the known universe you know only so many stories and they're going to overlap and that's fine but the character choices in this book were really close to the characters in six of crows so i thought i would run down who those characters are and see if you can like recognize the ma- the gilded wolves characters based on the six of crows characters are you ready okay I'm re- yep I'm okay ready. Uh, so there's six of them and these are a a gang i guess the crows right who have to go steal something from an impenetrable castle country house vault Okay. Okay. So you recognize the plotline. So we have uh, Kaz Brecker. He's the main uh, chief of the gang. He is a thief. He has attachment issues. He keeps secrets from his crew. He has like long-term psychological scars from his childhood. Definitely Severin. There you go. We have Inej. Inej is an acrobatic spy of Near Eastern heritage and Kaz's unresolved love interest. Definitely Layla. Definitely Layla. And they're probably the two um, closest. But we have some others here. We have Jesper. Jesper is a, a flamboyant gunslinger with a gambling problem used sometimes for comedic relief or lightening of the tone. And he has a love interest with another guy whose name is Wylan. I mean, I kind of want that to be Enrique, but I'm not sure. Enrique has a drinking problem. Jesper has a gambling problem. Yeah. Uh, Enrique's job is to give, like, wisecracking light relief. And, oh, for sure. and some of them are cross characters. We have Wylan. Wylan is a nerd. Oh, Enrique was the bait. I love is the bait. the bait. Yes. Uh, Wyland is our next character. Wyland is a neurodiverse demolition expert and love mm. interest of Wyland's. So he, but how white is her hair? <laughs> Wyland is a boy. Um, wow. And he, his neurodiversity is that he's dyslexic, not autistic. No, that's Sophia, though. 
Yeah, it's Zofia all the way down the line. Uh, likes to blow stuff up. And we have Nina. Nina is a witch-like person. She's a Grisha in this verse. Um, who's a sexy heartbreaker and caretaker of all the others. The mom figure to all the other crows. Like a gardener? Well, I was thinking more like Layla, who is kind of mom to everybody. Oh, she's mm -hmm. making sure you have a cookie and banjing you, oh, taking yeah. care of you. And uh, so she's kind of overlapping a little bit with Inej. And then we have uh, Matthias, who is to me the, the outlier. He's the uh, straight-laced moral compass character warrior, which we don't necessarily see that in this book. But to me, I was looking at the having read Six of Crows more than once and looking at the characters that it has who are a crew bent on stealing something to have them be really similar made me feel like this book was kind of like Six of Crows light. Okay, so now I'm having a crisis <laughs> because, one, I feel like that was like Marion's trick to get Lissa to read Six of Crows, which is going to work. And it was well played, I think. Um, but then also, like, I was totally, for my Camp Nano story, going to write, like, you know, collective group of people in space. And now I'm like, oh, but it's going to end up being these people now. Well, I don't so know. And, and like I said, I love ensemble casts and groups of people. And I think that's great. And if I were going to build one, I would probably say, dude, I have seen these people two times. So I want to make sure my people are different somehow or their own people enough that maybe like spin the the issue omatic and like have like the job and issue and so forth so you don't have such straight oh, acrossness. Funny. Yeah. I don't know. Because like I said, and I hate to, to complain about a book because for this reason, because there's only so many and people read genres for the tropes of that genre. Oh, yeah. If you had a romance novel and they didn't get together in the end because they grew apart as people and found themselves and were more interested in uh, going off to the Andes to become a llama farmer than they were in staying with this person, that would be unsatisfactory romance. Or frankly, just at the end, if they like realize maybe they're not meant to be. Yeah. So you know what? It's, like, no, it's been a good ride. I'm gone. So. That is not what I was here for. <laughs> That's great that that's how that worked out for you, yeah. but not in this book. So, so in in a group heist book with magic and fantasy, maybe you need people similar to this. But I've read a lot of them, and I've never, I've never sat down and thought, oh, this is the same um, thing. Yeah, and I had one other moment of like that in this book too, which was a Harry Potter moment uh, from Goblet of Fire. I'll spoil Harry Potter for you here at the end. I mean, you're only spoiling it for me. I know. other person on the And in the world. But there is a scene in Gilded Wolves where the bad guy makes a blood sacrifice and maybe like sacrifices his arm to bring back the mysterious or access the super mysterious super boss, all while surrounded by hooded members of a secret society society who have a special symbol on their arm and or hand and i thought dude that's harry potter in a goblet of fire like so much so i literally stopped reading a book because i'm like that's harry potter this scene has already been taken choose again so i feel like i said i'm coming away feeling like i'm battering this book <laughs> I should or chewing on it a little harder than I should chew on it because it is a good book and it does 
the things that it is supposed to do. And it has, in terms of its genre, does all the stuff. Right? So that's why this is such a great discussion, though, because we're like, so as writers, how do we do that exact thing without doing that exact that thing? thing? And yeah. how do we make the readers have those feels without making them have those other feels? We want them to have that same great experience, but different. Right. But not too different. Right. It's hard. And and maybe that's a, a writer maturity thing. Maybe if we write enough books, we get better at this or write ourselves into a space where we're doing our thing yeah (laughs) i mean this i'm gonna write my 17th nano novel like i don't even know if that math is right but you know let's pretend if i keep writing nano novels every year i will get to become a mature writer yeah but i think reading and thinking about it and talking about it taking it apart those are kind of the ways that we learn about that craft yeah, I said, you know, they said, if you want to be a, a writer, go read. And reading both books, I guess, within inside your wheelhouse and outside it are probably good because you can see how people are doing things or how people are putting things together or w- maybe where they're stumbling a little bit, saying, you know, in my own work, this is something I want to pay attention to. Make sure I'm not biting off more than I can chew, making sure that my magic system has limits that are clear and defined so I can deliver on the promise of it to my reader and making sure that my characters are unique enough while paying homage to the requirements of my genre. Yeah, and making sure the differences matter to the story. Right. That's very important. Some of these differences in these people like didn't matter to the story and maybe they will in the future maybe they will maybe they will but but i think you're right i hadn't thought about that Lisa. that why is it necessary for these people to be who they are or how does it change the story because they are who they are right and if you're reading for like who's going to hook up with who which i was (laughs) then it totally matters who likes which kind of people true but but like because it's going to affect those outcomes but if there's no like thing in society that's actually going to react to how this person physically looks if they're not being openly judged for it then it's harder for that to matter or even like is it necessary that Layla has this mysterious second identity as uh what is it um l'enigma a cabaret dancer that no one knows quite who she is because she wears a mask is it necessary for her to even do that? We never see her do her act in the entire book. Not once. I mean, just so that Severin can be really uncomfortable thinking about I it. I guess so. We go to the theater two times, but she doesn't do her act in front of us either time. Huh. Yeah. So much like that. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Oh, man. Now we're at that point of a book discussion where I need to go reread the whole book. <laughs> so tricky well i i feel great then because i'm at that point in our book discussion where i feel like ah i've said all the things i really needed to say to to get that off my chest and say it to another person and see if i sound bananagrams or not so i can Definitely put the book away and it's okay <laughs> well i mean until the second book comes out until the second book comes out which i will read so i will too was it a win for you or a lose for you or a draw um, 
I think it was a win because because it was interesting to go to a different place and definitely interesting to think about whether I was reading a book about history or magic or adventure or science science I was reading a science <laughs> book um, and even that was a win because it it made me think a lot about whether or not inventions can kind of save the day and which kind of people you need on your team and I don't know I liked the teamwork parts yeah I mean it was a win for me overall I liked it I didn't realize it was a trilogy until the very end. I think I texted you really late. <laughs> you did. You're like, I didn't even know there was going to be another one. I'm like, Lissa, it's called the Gilded Wolves number one. That kind of intimates that there's um, at least two. Mine doesn't say number one on it. Oh, well, I guess I looked at its its uh, Goodreads page or whatever, and it's listed in parents as such the Gilded Wolves number reader. Like, lately I read digital stuff, and I don't even see the cover or the description first. I'm just like, oh, yeah, let's read this. I was very surprised at the end. I was like, I don't know how they're going to wrap up so quickly. And then it just kind of <laughs> didn't wrap up. So many threads. So many threads. Well, it's weird because I thought the last couple of chapters were a real setup for um, the next book. Yeah, to... They were. That's where I started to get suspicious. Yes. But it wasn't going to wrap up. No, I thought it was a good setup at the end in terms of leaving leaving loose ends at a good place for a or, little bit. Or messing up people's relationships that have been going fairly well. So you can, you know. Yes. Put a wrench in them. Uh, for me, I've, like I said, I've been really trying to decide and I've not written my official review of it yet. And I've been trying to work out in my head whether I like it or whether I don't. Maybe it's a draw for me. Um, there are some things I really like about it and some things I found really frustrating about it. I like it enough to read the other ones. I'm frankly hoping, and I'll just say that I'm hoping that I'm kind of rooting for the bad guys in a way that maybe what this world needs is to lose its magic in the end. Maybe the magic is not healthy, as you were saying. Maybe it's it's led to these corrupt houses being in charge and causing unhappiness in people's lives, or the fallout of it is this um, cultural appropriation or colonialism or cultural warfare that is not good and has not been a benefit to any of the main characters in this book. So maybe what we need is to kill our magic system and lose it forever and enter in the age of machines, which is right around the corner in reality history. And real hard science. science. So if I was writing these books, that is what I would do with it, as I would kill the magic. Math to science. That's right. That's right. And the rise of the machine age. And magic for writing this book. But we could, we could. There you go. You can include you can include that in your in your camp, Nanorama novel, Lissa. The, the kill kill the magic and have the people brought to freedom through the death of magic instead of the control of magic. How about that? It's a, a free idea there for you. Thank you. It's just the right timing. <laughs> well, Marion, we have thoroughly discussed the Gilded Wolves, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelist at gmail.com. Join us next time where we'll talk about Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, and discuss our Camp NaNoWriMo writing projects. Mm-hmm.